Chapter 36 of The Missing Bride. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Missing Bride by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter 36 The Trial. The day of the trial came. It was a bright spring day and from an early hour in the morning the village was crowded to overflowing with people collected from all parts of the county the courtroom was filled to suffocation it was with the greatest difficulty that order could be maintained when the prisoner in the custody of the high sheriff was brought into court the venerable presiding judge was supposed to be unfriendly to the accused and the state's attorney was known to be personally as well as officially hostile to his interests. So strongly were the minds of the people prejudiced upon one side or the other that it was with much trouble that twelve men could be found who had not made up their opinions as to the prisoner's innocence or guilt. At length, however, a jury was impaneled and the trial commenced. When the prisoner was placed at the bar and asked the usual question, guilty or not guilty some of the old haughtiness curled the lip and flashed from the eye of thurston wilcoxen as though he disdained to answer a charge so base and he replied in a low scornful tone not guilty your honor the opening charge of the state's attorney had been carefully prepared mr thompson had never in his life had so important a case upon his hands and he was resolved to make the most of it. His speech was well-reasoned, logical, and eloquent, to destroy in the minds of the jury every favorable impression left by the late blameless and beneficent life of Mr. Wilcoxen. He did not fail to adduce from olden history and from later times every single instance of depravity, cloaked with hypocrisy in high places, he enlarged upon wolves in sheep's clothing satan in an angel's garb and dolefully pointed out how many times the indignant question of is thy servant a dog that he should do this thing had been answered by results in the affirmative he raked up david's sin from the ashes of ages where was the scene of that crime and who was its perpetrator in the court of israel by the king of israel a man after god's own heart could the gentlemen of the jury be surprised at the appalling discovery so recently made as if great crimes in high places were impossible or new things under the sun he did not fail to draw a touching picture of the victim the beautiful young stranger girl whom they all remembered and loved who had come an angel of mercy on a mission of mercy to their shores was not her beauty, her genius, her goodness, by which all there had at some time been blessed, sufficient to save her from the knife of the assassin? No, as he shall shortly prove, and yet all these years her innocent blood had cried to heaven in vain, her fate was unavenged, her manes unappeased. All the women, and all the simple-hearted and unworldly among the men, were melted into tears very unpropitious to the fate of thurston tears not called up by the eloquence of the prosecuting attorney so much as by the mere allusion to the fate of marian once 
so beloved and still so fresh in the memories of all thurston heard all this not in the second-hand style with which i have summed it up but in the first vital freshness when it was spoken with a logic force and fire that carried conviction to many a mind thurston looked upon the judge his face was stern and grave he looked upon the jury they were all strangers from distant parts of the county drawn by idle curiosity to the scene of trial and arriving quite unprejudiced they were not his peers but on the contrary twelve as stolid-looking brothers as ever decided the fate of a gentleman and scholar thence he cast his eye over the crowd in the courtroom there were his parishioners hoary patriarchs and gray-haired matrons stately men and lovely women who from week to week for many years had still hung delighted on his discourses as though his lips had been touched with fire and all his words inspired there they were around him again but oh how different the relations and the circumstances there they sat with stern brows and averted faces or downcast eyes and lips that scarce their scorn forbore no eye or lip among them responded kindly to his searching gaze and thurston turned his face away again for an instant his soul sunk under the pall of despair that fell darkening upon it it was not conviction in the court he thought of he would probably be acquitted by the court but what should acquit him in public opinion the evidence that might not be strong enough to doom him from death would still be sufficient to destroy forever his position and his usefulness no eye thenceforth would meet his own in friendly confidence no hand grasp his in brotherly fellowship the state's attorney was still proceeding with his speech he was now stating the case which he promised to prove by competent witnesses how the prisoner at the bar had long pursued his beautiful but hapless victim how he had been united to her by a private marriage that he had corresponded with her from europe that upon his return they had frequently met that the prisoner with a treachery that would soon be proved to be a part of his nature had grown weary of his wife and transferred his attentions to another and more fortune-favored lady and finally that upon the evening of the murder he had decoyed the unhappy young lady to the fatal spot and then and there effected his purpose the prosecuting attorney made the statement not with the brevity with which it is here reported but with a minuteness of detail and warmth of coloring that harrowed up the hearts of all who heard it he finished by saying that he should call the witness in the order of time corresponding with the facts they came to prove oliver murphy will take the stand this the first witness called after the usual oath deposed that he had first seen the prisoner and the deceased together in the library of congress had overheard the conversation and suspecting some unfairness on the part of the prisoner had followed the parties to the navy yard where he had witnessed their marriage ceremony when was the next occasion upon which you saw the prisoner on the night of the eighth of april eighteen twenty eight on the coast near pine bluff i had landed from a boat 
and was going inland when I passed him. I didn't see his face distinctly, but recognized him by his size and form and peculiar air and gait. He was hurrying away with every mark of terror and agitation. This portion of Mr. Murray's testimony was so new to all as to excite the greatest degree of surprise, and in no bosom did it arouse more astonishment than in that of Thurston. The witness was strictly cross-questioned by the counsel for the prisoner, but the cross-examination failed to weaken his testimony or to elicit anything more favorable to the accused. Oliver Murray was then directed to stand aside. The next witness was Miriam Shields, deeply veiled and half-fainting. The poor girl was led in between Colonel and Miss Thornton, and allowed to sit while giving evidence. When told to look at the prisoner at the bar, she raised her death-like face, and a deep gasping sob broke from her bosom. But Thurston fixed his eyes kindly and encouragingly upon her. His look said plainly, Fear nothing, dear Miriam. Be courageous. Do your stern duty, and trust in God. Miriam then identified the prisoner as the man she had twice seen alone with Marion at night. She further testified that upon the night of April 8, 1828, Marion had left home late in the evening to keep an appointment from which she never returned, that in the pocket of the dress she had laid off was found the note appointing the meeting upon the beach for the night in question. Here the note was produced. Miriam identified the handwriting as that of Mr. Wilcoxon. Paul Douglas was next called to the stand and required to give his testimony in regard to the handwriting. Paul looked at the piece of paper that was placed before him, and he was sorely tempted. How could he swear to the handwriting unless he had actually seen the hand write it, he asked himself. He looked at his brother. But Thurston saw the struggle in his mind, and his countenance was stern and high, and his look authoritative and commanding. It said, Paul, do not dare to deceive yourself. You know the handwriting. Speak the truth if it kills me. And Paul did so. The next witness that took the stand was Dr. Brightwell. The good old physician gave his evidence very reluctantly. It went to prove the fact of the prisoner's absence from the deathbed of his grandfather upon the night of the reputed murder and his distracted appearance when returning late in the morning. Why do you say reputed murder? Because, sir, I never consider the fact of a murder established until the body of the victim has been found. You may stand down. Dr. Solomon Wiseman was next called to the stand and corroborated the testimony of the last witness. Several other witnesses were then called in succession, whose testimony being only corroborative was not very important, and the prisoner was remanded and the court adjourned until ten o'clock the next morning. Life will be saved, but position and usefulness in this neighborhood gone forever, Paul, said Thurston, as they went out. Evidence very strong, very conclusive to our minds, yet not sufficient to convict him, said one gentleman to another. 
I am of honest Dr. Brightwell's opinion that the establishment of a murder needs as a starting point the finding of the body, and moreover that the conviction of a murderer requires an eyewitness to the deed. The evidence, so far as we have heard it, is strong enough to ruin the man, but not strong enough to hang him, said a third. Aye, but we have not heard all, or the most important part of the testimony. The state's attorney has not fired his great gun yet, said a fourth, as the crowd elbowed and pushed and struggled out of the courtroom. Those from distant parts of the county remained in the village all night. Those nearer returned home to come back in the morning. The second day of the trial. The village was more crowded than before. At ten o'clock the court opened, the prisoner was shortly afterward brought in, and the prosecution renewed its examination of witnesses. The next witness that took the stand was a most important one. John Miles, captain of the schooner Plover. He deposed that in the month of April, 1828, he was mate in the schooner Blanche, of which his father was the captain that in said month the prisoner at the bar had hired his father's vessel to carry off a lady whom the prisoner declared to be his own wife, that they were to take her to the Bermudas, that to effect their object his father and himself had landed near Pine Bluff. The night was dark, yet he soon discerned the lady walking alone upon the beach. They were bound to wait for the arrival of the prisoner and a signal from him before approaching the lady. They waited some time, watching from their cover the lady as she paced impatiently up and down the sands. At length they saw the prisoner approaching. He was closely wrapped up in his cloak, and his hat was pulled over his eyes. But they recognized him well by his air and gait. They drew nearer still, keeping in the shadow, waiting for the signal. The lady and the prisoner met. A few words passed between them, of which he, the deponent, only heard, Thurston? Yes, Thurston. And then the prisoner raised his arm and struck, and the lady fell. His father was a cautious man, and when he saw the prisoner rush up the cliff and disappear, when he saw that the lady was dead, and that the storm was beginning to rage violently, and the tide was coming in, and fearing besides that he should get into trouble, he hurried into the boat and put off and boarded the schooner, and as soon as possible set sail for Bermuda. They had kept away from this coast for years, that is to say, as long as the father lived. John Miles was cross-examined by Mr. Rumford, but without effect. The testimony bore fatally upon the prisoner's cause. The silence of consternation reigned through the crowd. Thurston Wilcoxon, when he heard this astounding evidence, first thought that the witness was perjured. But when he looked closely upon his open, honest face, and fearless eye, and free bearing, he saw that no consciousness of falsehood was there, and that he could but grant that the witness, naturally deceived by foregone conclusions, had inevitably mistaken the real murderer for himself. Darker and darker lowered the pall of fate over him. The awful stillness of the court was oppressive, was suffocating. A deathly faintness came upon him, for now, for the first time, he fully realized the awful doom that threatened him. Not long his nature bowed under the burden. 
His spirit rose to throw it off, and once more the fine head was proudly raised, nor did it once sink again. The last witness for the prosecution was called, and took the stand, and deposed that he lived ten miles down the coast, on an isolated obscure place, and that on the first of May, 1828, the body of a woman had been found at low tide upon the beach, and that it had the appearance of having been very long in the water. The clothing was respectable, the dress was dark blue stuff, but was faded in spots. There was a ring on the finger, but the hand was so swollen that it could not be got off. His poor neighbors of the coast assembled. They made an effort to get the coroner, but he could not be found, and the state of the body demanded immediate burial. When cross-questioned by lawyer Rumford, the witness said they had not then heard of any missing or murdered lady, but had believed the body to be that of a shipwrecked passenger until they heard of Miss Mayfield's fate. Miriam was next recalled. She came in as before, supported between Colonel and Miss Thornton. Everyone who saw the poor girl said that she was dying. When examined, she deposed that Marion, when she left home, had worn a blue merino dress, and yet she always wore a little locket ring on her finger. Drooping and fainting as she was, Miriam was allowed to leave the courtroom, and this closed the evidence of the prosecution. The defense was taken up and conducted with a great deal of skill. Mr. Rumford enlarged upon the noble character his client had ever maintained from childhood to the present time. They all knew him. He had been born and had ever lived among them. What man or woman of them all would have dared to suspect him of such a crime? He spoke warmly of his truth, fidelity, Christian zeal, benevolence, philanthropy, and great public benefits. I have no space nor time to give a fair idea of the logic and eloquence with which Mr. Rumford met the charges of the state's attorney, nor the astute skill with which he tried to break down the force of the evidence for the prosecution. Then he called the witnesses for the defense. They were all warm friends of Mr. Wilcoxon. All had known him from boyhood. None would believe that under any possible circumstance he could commit the crime for which he stood indicted. They testified to his well-known kindness, gentleness, and benevolence. His habitual forbearance and command of temper, and even under the most exasperating provocations, they swore to his generosity, fidelity, and truthfulness in all the relations of life. In a word, they did the very best they could to save his life and honor. But the most they could do was very little before the force of such evidence as stood arrayed against him and all men saw that unless an alibi could be proved, Thurston Wilcoxon was lost. Oh, for that alibi! Paul Douglas was again undergoing an awful temptation. Why, he asked himself, why should he not perjure his soul and lose it, to save his brother's life and honor from fatal wrong? And if there had not been in Paul's heart a love of truth greater than his fear of hell, his affection for Thurston would have triumphed he would have perjured himself. The defense here closed. The state's attorney did not even deem it necessary to speak again, and the judge proceeded to charge the jury. They must not, he said, be blinded by the social position, clerical character, youth, talents, accomplishments, or celebrity of the prisoner. With however dazzling a halo these might surround him, 
they must deliberately coolly upon the evidence that had been laid before them and after due consideration of the case if there was a doubt upon their minds they were to let the prisoner have the full benefit of it wherever there was the least uncertainty it was right to lean to the side of mercy the case was then given to the jury the jury did not leave the box but counseled together in a low voice for half an hour during which a death-like silence a suffocating atmosphere filled the courtroom thurston alone was calm his soul had collected all its force to meet the shock of whatever fate might come honor or dishonor life or death presently the foreman of the jury arose followed by the others every heart stood still gentlemen of the jury have you agreed upon your verdict demanded the judge yes your honor responded the foreman on the part of his colleagues how say you is the prisoner at the bar guilty or not guilty not guilty cried the shrill tones of a girl near the outer door toward which all eyes in astonishment and inquiry were now turned to see a slight female figure in the garb of a sister of mercy clinging to the arm of cloudsley mornington and who was now pushing and elbowing his way through the crowd toward the bench all gave way many that were seated arose to their feet and spoke in eager whispers or looked over each other's heads order silence in the court shouted the marshal your honor this lady is a vitally important witness for the defense said cloudy pushing his way into the presence of the judge leaving his female companion standing before the bench and then hurrying to the dock where he grasped the hand of the prisoner exclaiming breathlessly saved thurston saved order silence called out the marshal by way of making himself agreeable for there was silence in the court where all the audience at least were more anxious to hear than to speak your honor i move that the new witness be heard said mr rumford the defense is closed the charge given to the jury who have decided upon their verdict answered the state's attorney the verdict has not been rendered the jury have the privilege of hearing this new witness said the judge the jury were unanimous in the resolution to withhold their verdict until they had heard this being decided the sister of mercy took the stand threw aside her long black veil and revealed the features of jacquelina but so pale weary anxious and terrified as to be scarcely recognizable the usual oath was administered and while cloudy stood triumphantly by the side of mr wilcoxen jacquelina prepared to give her evidence she was interrupted by a slight disturbance near the door and the rather noisy entrance of several persons whom the crowd on beholding recognized as commodore waugh his wife his niece and his servant some among them seemed to insist upon being brought directly into the presence of the judge and jury but the officer near the door pointed out to them the witness on the stand waiting to give testimony and on seeing her they subsided into quietness and suffered themselves to be set aside for a while when this was over a lady plainly dressed and close veiled entered and addressed a few words to the same janitor but the latter replied as he had to the others by pointing to the witness on the stand the veiled lady seemed to acquiesce and sat down where the officer directed her order silence in the court cried the marshal not to be behindhand 
and order and silence reigned when the sister gave in her evidence as follows. My name is Jacqueline Lousseau, not Grimshaw, for I never was the wife of Dr. Grimshaw. I do not like to speak further of myself, yet it is necessary to make my testimony clear. While yet a child, I was contracted to Dr. Grimshaw in a civil marriage which was never ratified. I was full of mischief in those days, and my greatest pleasure was to torment and provoke my would-be bridegroom. Alas, alas, it was to that wanton spirit that all this disaster is owing. Thurston Wilcoxon and Marion Mayfield were my intimate friends. On the morning of the 8th of April, 1828, they were both at Luckenough. Thurston left early. After he was gone, Marion chanced to drop a note, which I picked up and read. It was in the handwriting of Thurston Wilcoxon, and it appointed a meeting with Marion upon the beach near Pine Bluff for that evening. Here Mr. Rumford placed in her hands the scrap of paper that had already formed such an important part of the evidence against the prisoner. Is this the note of which you speak? Yes, that is the note. And when I picked it up, the wanton spirit of mischief inspired me with a wish to use it for the torment of Dr. Grimshaw, who was easily provoked to jealousy. Oh, I never thought it would end so fatally. I affected to lose the note and left it in his way. I saw him pick it up and read it. I felt sure he thought, as I intended he should think, it was for me. There were other circumstances also to lead him to the same conclusion. He dropped the note where he had picked it up and pretended not to have seen it. Afterwards, I, in the same way, restored it to Marion. To carry on my fatal jest, I went home in the carriage with Marion to Oldfield Cottage, which stands near the coast. I left Marion there and set out to return to Luckenough, laughing all the time. Alas, to think that Dr. Grimshaw had gone to the coast to intercept what he supposed to be my meeting with Thurston. Oh, God, I never thought such jests could be so dangerous. Alas, alas, he met Marion Mayfield in the dark, and between the storm without and the storm within, the blindness of night and the blindness of rage, he stabbed her before he found out his mistake. And he rushed home with her innocent blood on his hands and clothing rushed home and into my presence to reproach me as the cause of his crime, to fill my bosom with undying remorse, and then to die. He had in the crisis of his passion ruptured an artery, and he fell, so that the blood found upon his hands and clothing was supposed to be his own. No one knew the secret of his blood guiltiness but myself. In my illness and delirium that followed, I believe I dropped some words that made my aunt, Mrs. Waugh, and Mr. Cloudsley Mornington suspect something, but I never betrayed my knowledge of the dead man's unintentional crime, and would not do so now but to save the innocent. May I now sit down? No, the state's attorney wanted to take her in hand and cross-examine her, which he began to do severely, unsparingly. But as she had told the exact truth, though not in the clearest style, the more the lawyer sifted her testimony, the clearer and more evident its truthfulness and point became, until there seemed at length nothing to do but acquit the prisoner. 
but courts of law are proverbially fussy and now the state's attorney was doing his best to invalidate the testimony of the last witness turn we from them to the veiled lady where she sat in her obscure corner of the room hearing all this oh who can conceive far less portray the joy the unspeakable joy that filled her heart nearly to breaking he was guiltless thurston her beloved was guiltless in intention as he was indeed the thought of crime had not been near his heart his long remorse had been occasioned by what he had unintentionally made her suffer he was all that he had lately appeared to the world all that he had at first appeared to her faithful truthful constant noble generous her heart was vindicated her love was not the madness the folly the weakness that her intellectual nature had often stamped it to be her love was vindicated for he deserved it all oh joy unspeakable oh joy insupportable she was a strong calm self-governing woman not wont to be overcome by any event or any emotion yet now her head her whole form drooped forward and she sank upon the low balustrade in front of her seat weighed down by excess of happiness happiness so absorbing that for a time she forgot everything else but soon she remembered that her presence was required near the bench to put a stop to the debate between the lawyers and she strove to quell the tumultuous excitement of her feelings and to recover self-command before going among them in the meantime near the bench the counsel for the prisoner had succeeded in establishing the validity of the challenged testimony and the case was once more about to be recommitted to the jury when the lady who had been quietly making her way through the crowd toward the bench stood immediately in front of the judge raised her veil and marion mayfield stood revealed with a loud cry the prisoner sprang upon his feet but was immediately captured by two officers who fancied he was about to escape marion did not speak one word she could not do so nor was it necessary there she stood alive among them they all knew her the judge the officers the lawyers the audience there she stood alive among them it was enough the audience arose in a mass and said marion marion mayfield was the general exclamation as all pressed toward the newcomer jacquelina stunned with a too sudden joy swooned in the arms of cloudy who between surprise and delight had nearly lost his own senses the people pressed around marion with exclamations and inquiries the marshal forgot to be disorderly with vociferations of order and stood among the rest agape for news marion recovered her voice and spoke i am not here to give any information what explanation i have to make is due first of all to mr wilcoxen who has the right to claim it of me when he pleases and turning around she moved toward the dock raising her eyes to thurston's face and offering her hand how he met that look how he clasped that hand need not be said their hearts were too full for speech the tumult in the courtroom was at length subdued by the rising of the judge to make a speech a very brief one 
Mr. Wilcoxon is discharged, and the court is adjourned. And then the judge came down from his seat, and the officers cried, Make way for the court to pass, and the way was made. The judge came up to the group and shook hands first with Mr. Wilcoxon, whom he earnestly congratulated, and then with Marion, who was an old and esteemed acquaintance, and so bowing gravely, he passed out. Still the crowd pressed on, and among them came Commodore Waugh and his family, for whom way was immediately made. Mrs. Waugh wept and smiled and exclaimed, Oh, Hebe, oh, Lapwing! The Commodore growled out certain inarticulate anathemas, which he intended should be taken as congratulations, since the people seemed to expect it of him. And Mary Lousseau pulled down her mouth, cast up her eyes, and crossed herself when she saw the consecrated hand of Sister Teresa clasped in that of Cloudy. But Thurston's high spirit could not brook this scene an instant longer, and love, as well as pride, required its speedy close. Marian was resting on his arm. He felt the clasp of her dear hand. He saw her living face, the angel brow, the clear eyes, the rich auburn tresses rippling around the blooming cheek. He heard her dulcet tones, and yet it seemed to like a dream. He needed to realize this happiness. Friends, he said, I thank you for the interest you show in us. For those whose faith in me remained unshaken in my darkest hour, I find no words good enough to express what I shall ever feel. But you must all know how exhausting this day has been and how needful repose is. His eyes here fell fondly and proudly upon Marian, to this lady on my arm. After tomorrow we shall be happy to see any of our friends at Dell Delight. And bowing slightly from right to left, he led his Marian through the opening crowd. End of chapter 36